I'll have you turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'd like to invite you to bow your heads with me, and we're going to ask the Lord to give us a blessing this afternoon. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're together, we're here, we've come to find inspiration in all that you have to say and all that you have to teach. We're asking you to come our way this afternoon, send your Holy Spirit, send your holy angels, communicate with our hearts. This is our desire, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. A young lady contacted me not so long ago and asked that I come here and share with you for um, 20 or 30 minutes, asking that I bring a challenge to your hearts. Well, my challenge this afternoon, of course, is keeping you awake after lunch, and if you'll live up to that challenge, then I hope that you'll hear the other challenge that I'm bringing to you. I've got a question for you this morning. And by the way, this evening rather, uh, afternoon, whatever time it is, the title for this afternoon is Identity Crisis. Have you ever had an identity crisis? Do you know what an identity crisis is? It's when you don't know who you are and it's when you don't know what you're about or why you exist. And so that's our title. And obviously we're at ASI and I'm here to, to uh, bring that thought to our, our minds. Do we know who we are as ASI? Do, you, do we know why we exist? Why should anyone join ASI? Could we answer that question if someone would ask us? Do you know what the benefits are for belonging to ASI? Uh, I, you know, it would be interesting for me if I could spend a little time with you and to ask you that question personally because I would like to hear your response. I believe with all my heart that ASI is an organization that God has, God has produced, God has given to us, and for a very specific purpose. But I have found in my travels that not everyone seemed to be able to answer these questions for themselves or for anyone else who would like to ask these questions. And so, if I may, and I'm not quite sure that I can, but this afternoon I really would like to clear that up. You can pray with me that the Holy Spirit would inspire us this afternoon. Now, let's start with Jesus. I think that's a good place to start. Do you think that Jesus had an identity crisis? What do you think? Do you think that Jesus knew who he was? Do you think that Jesus knew why he existed? Do you think that he knew why he came to this world and what exactly he wanted to do? Now, amazingly, he came unto his own, and his own were not quite sure they could identify with him because when he came unto his own, they had formed some kind of expectations that he did not fulfill, and it caused a little crisis both in the life of Jesus and in the life of these people that he came to save. I have you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're in Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're looking at verse 4. I understand that this is the Old Testament, and this is a picture of God in the Old Testament. Verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Now, there's a better translation of this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, if you were to speak to a Jewish individual today, they would tell you there is one God based on this on this Bible verse, and it's true, it's true. If you were to speak to a Muslim today, they would say that there is one God and his name is Allah. If you would speak to an anti-Trinitarian today, they would say that the word one here is singular and there's only one God, and then they go on to denigrate, I think, Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, of course. Now, 
It's interesting that when you move, move to the New Testament, you find Jesus in John chapter 10. Now, I'll have you turn to John chapter 10. Even though I can recite one verse here, we're going to look at other verses. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I and my Father are one. Now, if I add correctly, I think that's two people. Now, either Jesus doesn't know how to add or he is giving more, a deeper meaning to the word one here than we naturally will uh, do to it. So turn with me to John chapter 10. Usually when we talk about oneness, we're usually talking about unity. We're talking about being in agreement. We're talking about having the same purposes and the same goals and the same vision. But when Jesus said, I and my Father are one, he wasn't talking about that specifically. It includes that. But the people who he was talking to understood what he was saying. They understood to the point that they were willing to stone him. So turn with me now to John chapter 10. I had you turn there, and I didn't turn there myself. John chapter 10, we're looking at verse, beginning with verse 30. And it says, I and my Father are one. What did he mean? I'll tell you what. The Jewish people who were listening to him knew exactly what he meant, and they picked up stones to stone in verse 31. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Now, why in the world would anyone want to stone anyone for saying, I and my father are united? I and my father are in agreement. We have the same purposes. We have the same goals. We are one. Well, that's no reason to stone anyone, but that's not what he was meaning. And they understood what he was meaning, and it says so in verse 32. Jesus answering them and said, Many good works have I showed you from my Father, for which of those good works do you stone me? And they said, and they answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, because that thou, being a man, makest thyself what? Jesus was God. Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew why he came. And I appreciate the preachers that went before me because at least two of them touched on this subject. Jesus is God. He knew it, and the Jewish people that he was speaking to knew it, and they didn't like him saying that because he wasn't meeting their expectations. This is not the God they wanted, but this is the Messiah that God sent. Okay? And in a sense, if you look at this situation, here is a man, Jesus took on humanity, by the way, a man shows up and he claims that he is God. What would you do with a man who claimed that he was God today? Just an ordinary man. Well, you can understand that it, it's a wild claim, in essence. If I have you turn to John chapter 8, this is not far away, we're in John chapter 10, we're going to John chapter 8, we're looking at verses 50-something. John chapter 8, let's go, verse 53. The Jews are asking Jesus, Are you greater than our father Abraham, which is, which is dead? And the prophets are dead, whom, whom makest thou thyself to be? Who are you anyway? What are you saying anyway? Okay, and Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father that honors me of whom ye say that he is your God. Yet ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. But I know him and keep his sayings. And your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. 
Then said the Jews to him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I'm what? I am. Do you know that's present tense? And do you know that he's referring to Abraham? Now, I don't know how many thousand years before Abraham existed, before Jesus. Was it 1,500 years? Was it 2,000? I don't know. But it wasn't present tense in the day that he was speaking to the Jews. And yet Jesus could say, I am omnipresent. I am ever-present. I am right here eternally. I exist at the time when Abraham was. I am you see, and they understood clearly what he was saying there. Jesus is saying, I am God, and they took up stones to stone him. Now, of course, Jesus is making this claim. He is the, the I am. He is the eternal one. He is God, yet he's making a claim that is very, very difficult for human beings to grasp because he looks just like another human being. And so I don't believe that Jesus... In, was asking them to believe it just because he was saying it. I believe that Jesus wanted them to look at this claim juxtaposed against the fruit that he bore. He wanted these, pay, these people to look at his claim against the life that he was living, against the things that he did. Go with me to John chapter 14. And we're going to look at verse 11. John chapter 14, and we're looking at verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sakes. There's a lot of people who make all kinds of claims. There's a lot of people who claim to be messiahs. There's a lot of people who would like to claim that they are Jesus Christ, or they are some kind of prophet. And they make claims, but their lives do not live up to the claims that they made. Now, it would be interesting if we had lived in the days of Jesus to watch the miracles that he performed. Did he perform miracles? Oh, yes, he did. It would have been interesting to watch the tenderness with which he was able to deal with his enemies, the love that he demonstrated with two people, the sacrifice that he suffered on the cross of Calvary, his humility, his meekness, and all the qualities of Jesus. I don't know if people would have come to the conclusion that he is God. Well, the centurion did at the foot of the cross. All you had to do was look at Jesus and study his life, and you would know that there was something special about his life. And so Jesus makes the claim, I am God, and then he says, believe me, not because I said it, but for my very own work's sake. We're going to turn now to the John the Baptist. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 7. And John the Baptist had an identity crisis. John the Baptist is in the dungeon. He's about to lose his head, and I don't know what he knows about that, but he's beginning to wonder who he is and what he's about and who Jesus is and what Jesus is about. And we're looking at verse 19 in John chapter, excuse me, yeah, verse 19 in John chapter 7. And John calling unto him two of his disciples sent them to Jesus saying, our, art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? John the Baptist was called of God to prepare the way for Jesus' first coming. He finds Jesus. He gets instruction from heaven to say that this is the Messiah. He joins that team, and all of a sudden he's in the dungeon, and he's beginning to worry. He's beginning to have an identity crisis. Am I on the right team? 
Who are we anyway? And so he sends his disciples to Jesus to say, are you he or do we look for another? I mean, have I made a mistake here? Is something wrong with my thinking? Go with me now to verse 20 and we'll read till verse 23. And when the men were come unto him, they said, John, John the Baptist has sent us unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? And in that same hour he cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of the evil spirits, and unto many that were blind he gave sight. Then Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way and tell John what things you have seen and heard, how that the blind men see and the lame walk and the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised and the poor have heard the gospel preached unto them and blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. Now I want you to notice that last verse. Why did Jesus say blessed are they who are not offended of me? Because he knew, he understood that the question that came from John the Baptist came from a mind that was confused. He came from a mind that was offended. John the Baptist was offended. He was saying to himself in the dungeon, what's the deal here? What kind of Messiah have we got? Why isn't he conquering the Romans? Why in the very least is he not releasing me from this dungeon? Is he not the Messiah anyway? You know, John had bought in to a false expectation entertained by the Jewish people. The Jews expected a conquering Messiah. They wanted the lion of the tribe of Judah. They didn't know what to do with a dying lamb. They expected the Messiah to add gain to gain. They expected the Messiah to rule the world. They expected a Messiah that would fill their coffers and bolster their pride. But the Messiah they got saw nothing in this world that was worth having. The Messiah they got saw nothing in this world that was good for himself or for his disciples. Not a position, not a title, not wealth, not power, not recognition, nothing. That's not why he came to this world. And when he called disciples, it was not to enrich them. It was not to give them positions or titles or places of recognition. I wonder, does that offend you? <laughs> No, I don't think that in itself would offend John the Baptist because John the Baptist was very humble. John the Baptist was very meek. John the Baptist was willing to take the lowest place. We're going to see that in a minute. Okay, now as a matter of fact, our Messiah sees gain in the loss of all things. Now, if you lost everything today, would you think that gain? I can read this from the Spirit of Prophecy. This is volume 7. 271, paragraph 3. And <clears throat> this, um, this quotation blows me away. There are some things in this quotation that I cannot explain. But you take it and you do what you want with it. Watch what it says. Volume 7, 271, paragraph 3. Christ's heart is cheered by the sight of those who are poor in every sense of the word. Now take that sentence. See Jesus up in heaven. He looks down to this world and he finds someone that is poor in every sense of the word. And Jesus is what? Cheered. Now, wait a minute. Does that make sense to you at all? Isn't that an amazing saying? Goes on to say that Jesus is cheered by his view of ill-used ones who are meek. Now, I can understand that a little bit better. 
If a person is ill-used and responds in meekness, then you can see that God is happy with that individual. It goes on to say, God, Jesus is cheered by the seemingly unsatisfied hungering after righteousness, by the inability of many to begin. He welcomes, as it were, the very condition of things that would discourage many ministers. Now, I did an evangelistic series not long ago, and one of our Bible workers brought in a lady. This lady was an alcoholic. This lady is on drugs. This lady has bipolar. This lady is, you know, from the lower classes. She's smoking the whole nine yards. And I'm like, oh, man, I wish our Bible workers would have better candidates because this is going to be impossible, you know. But here it tells me that Jesus welcomes, as it were, the very condition of things that would discourage many ministers. Discourage me. But Jesus appreciates a challenge and he looks down to this world and he can point to the very worst candidates and he says, what a challenge. This cheers my heart. Page 272. He works through those who discern mercy and misery. Have you ever been miserable? I've had some miserable days in my life. I've had some miserable years in my life. And Jesus saw mercy there. It was good for me, you see. He works through those who discern gain in the loss of all things. I had a lifestyle guest come to Eden Valley. She was telling me her house burnt down and everything that was in it. And so I asked her, did you see gain in the loss of all things? And she says, well, not the day it burnt down. <laughs> but after so many years and looking back, she could see how God was in it and it became a blessing to her. Okay. When the light of the world passes by, privileges appear in all hardships. How many? All. Have you ever had a hardship? You think it's a curse? It isn't. It's a privilege. That's what it says. When the light of the world passes by, order is seen in confusion. Success and wisdom of God in that which has seemed to be a failure. And so my Bible says that God doesn't think as we do. God doesn't do as we do. As high as the heavens is above the earth, so is God's ways above my ways. Isn't that true? I hope you've had the experience. If you don't know that, you're still a baby Christian because... We form for ourselves all kinds of expectations and then God does the opposite and we think it's crazy. We think we're going to be hurt. We think we're going to be cursed. And my God says all things work together for good. My God says that he is the orderer of all our experiences and he only orders that which his providence sees best. I have a God in heaven who knows what he's doing. He's in charge of my life and whatever happens to me is the best thing that can happen to me. And I assume if you love the Lord that the that's how you relate to God in every circumstance that comes in your life. Is it true? It's true whether you believe it or not. Now, John the Baptist, of course, was in the dungeon. He needed to have his head screwed on right all of a sudden. Uh, it's amazing that it should be so, but who was John the Baptist anyway? Do you know who he was? If you go to, um, go to Matthew chapter 11, Jesus identifies who John the Baptist is, and it's an amazing identification if you go to verse 11 in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus says, Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Who was saying this? Jesus was. Does Jesus know what he's talking about? Do you know that he's pointing to John the Baptist and he's saying this is the greatest man that was ever born of women? Isn't that amazing? 
and yet the greatest man that was ever born of women is in the dungeon scratching his head wondering if he bought into the right program. He's got an identity crisis. Well, that gives me at least some comfort to think that if I'm not quite sure about everything I'm doing, it doesn't matter. There's a God in heaven who is sure about what he's doing. And he knew how to deal with John the Baptist, and he knew how to deal with me also. Now, what is it that made John the Baptist the greatest man in the world? If you look at the rest of the verse, it's in there. Now, it's a very spiritual, um, you have to have your spiritual cap on to catch what is saying there. But watch. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What is this saying? It's saying that a person who is least in self-esteem is the greatest in this world. The person who esteems everyone else greater than himself is a great person, is greater than all of them. I can read it to you from last day events 296. The greatest in heaven is least in self-esteem. The least is greatest in gratitude and wealth of love. So when we get to heaven, the person who thinks everyone else is bigger, everyone else is greater, everyone else is smarter, he sees, he esteems everyone else greater than himself, God will bring him up and say, you're the greatest one here. Isn't that amazing? That's what made John the Baptist the, the greatest. Now I have a, a strange question to ask you. Was Jesus lesser or greater than John the Baptist? Well, he was greater, there's no doubt about it. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's God himself. Okay? Well, now, why? then why, like the Jews with John, expect the Messiah to be less in self-sacrifice less in humility, less loving, less humble, less meek than himself. John the Baptist was willing to wear the most modest clothing. John the Baptist was willing to eat the most modest diet. John the Baptist didn't mind poverty at all. He lived in the, in the wilderness. He didn't go looking to get an education so that he could become whatever. He was truly a humble individual. And then why would he expect the Messiah to want to conquer the whole world and become the king of some nation in this world. It doesn't make any sense. John the Baptist didn't want that for himself. Why would he look at Jesus and think that he would want more than himself in this world? Well, it doesn't make any sense. Now, if we turn this thing around, it's easy for us to see Jesus in terms of being a sacrificial servant. It's easy for us to see Jesus in terms of being meek and mild and gracious and good. But now we have a different, different problem. It's hard for us to look at ourselves and think that we can be like Jesus. After all, we're only human, right? Do you mean to tell me that we need to turn the other cheek? Shouldn't I be able to defend myself if I had to defend myself? Do you mean to tell me that I don't have any right to fight for my rights? I know what fair is and I know what unfair is and I'm going to fight for what is fair. Do you mean to tell me that when Ellen White says that God expects a man to give everything that it is possible for a man to give, that I've got, I've got to live like that? If you gave everything that it is possible for you to give, what would you have left? But that is a spirit of prophecy quotation, by the way. Do you know that we're in this world and God expects us to give everything that it is possible for a man to give? Now that's too much. The bar is too high, isn't it? Wow. 
Friends, no. You see, we are the Laodicean church. We are lukewarm. We don't see things as they are. We think we're better off than we are. Thou knowest not that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You think you're spiritually rich. We think that we're it because we have the truth. And God is saying, you don't see the picture. God wants more from me. God wants more from you. God wants everything that we have to give because that's what he did. And do you think you'll be impoverished by doing it? No way. No. I have been in this work for 40 years. I gave up a job that was making lots of money. I was making $100 a day. That was a lot of money 40 years ago. I was making $100 a day and I joined a self-supporting institution at $20 a month. Is there a difference between $100 a day and $20 a month? Now, I'm not very fat, but I'm not dead. And I can still work for the Lord. And we would like to say, well, that's one thing, Jesus can do it, but we are only human. Can I say something here? If we are only human, we are not Christians, because a Christian is a partaker of God's divine nature. And if we are partakers of God's divine nature, then we will live as Jesus lived in this world. We will sacrifice our time, we will sacrifice our strength, we will sacrifice our health if need be. We will sacrifice our money, our titles, our, our recognition. We will sacrifice power. We will sacrifice life if need be. Wouldn't we? Isn't that what it means to be a Christian? In Welfare Ministry, page 32. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And then Ellen White makes a comment on this Bible verse. Thy, thou shalt love thyself, thy neighbor as thyself. As a people, we must take hold of this work. Love revealed for suffering humanity gives significance and power to the truth. Now that last sentence, I want to repeat it, and I want to say something. Love revealed for suffering humanity gives significance and power to the truth. Think about that last sentence. You know, I was telling you a few minutes ago, I did an evangelistic series last fall, and no one was baptized. Not one. Not yet, even. We went out and we made these beautiful flyers, and we gave them out by the thousand. Some people came. Not a lot of people came. Some people came and left. Some people came for one or two meetings and didn't come back. Some people stayed to the end, still would not be baptized. Now I have a question for you. Would a little significance and power injected into that situation help anything? Would a little love revealed for suffering humanity be worth trying? Now somebody might say, now wait a minute, now wait a minute. We do need to teach them about the Sabbath. We need to teach them about the sanctuary. We need to teach them to pay tithe. And we need to teach them about the state of the dead and all the rest. You know, that's true. We do need to teach them about these things, but watch. Watch what I'm about to read. This is manuscript release. We're looking, manuscript release uh, number five, page 33. We cannot keep the Sabbath holy unless we serve the Lord in the manner brought to view in the scriptures. Now you take that quotation. You cannot keep the Sabbath holy unless your life is lived in a certain manner that's described in a certain scripture. Which scripture do you think that is? Now, I would guess that there are some people in this audience who could guess what that scripture is. You cannot keep the 
Sabbath holy. You cannot keep any other doctrine purely if you don't live up to a certain scripture in the Bible. You know which one it is? Isaiah 58. Deal thy bread to the hungry. Bring the outcast to thy house. Clothe the naked. Visit the sick and imprisoned. Take care of the widows and the fatherless. Don't hide yourself from your own. This is Ellen White now. This is the work that rests upon every soul who accepts the service of Christ. Friends, do you see it? Do you see it? The Sabbath, tithing, the 2300 days, the sanctuary, the plan of salvation, the state of the dead, the spirit of prophecy, all lose their significance and their power if we don't live up to the standard that is set for us in Isaiah 58. Isn't that scary? How many outcasts do you bring to your house? How much bread do you deal to the hungry? How much clothing do you supply for those who are naked? Yeah. Widows and fatherless. It's amazing, but if you study the scriptures through, you know that we will not even be judged by anything by, but our works. We won't be judged by which denominations we belong to. We won't be judged by the standard uh, that we believe or the doctrines that we believe. We won't be judged by everything that is ethereal. We will be judged by what works we have done and how we've related to people. By this shall the world know that you are my disciples. This is who ASI is meant to be. There's a lot of people who come to ASI in the hope or join ASI in the hope of finding funding for what it is that they want to do. And that's great. It's great. But do you know how many hundreds of applications that we get for funding? And do you know how many we can fund actually? You take hundreds and you reduce it down to about 35. That makes for a lot of disappointed people. Well, what do disappointed people do if all they came for was to find funding from us? Many come to us and they want to know what the benefits are for themselves. Well, sometimes I have to admit that we are not able to articulate what the benefits are. Not in such a way in any case that it inspires them to stay with us. Some people join ASI in one door and go out the back door because we did not treat them the way they expected to be treated. They ask, is ASI the one or, will, or look we for another? There's a lot of people who come to ASI to be entertained. Forgive me for saying so if you've come to be entertained. We just had an ASI meeting. I won't say where it was. There was a group of 1,300 people. They came because Barry Black was the speaker. Now, friends, I have nothing against Barry Black, and I'll tell you what, his preaching was fantastic. It was good. It was heartfelt. It was inspiring, and it was convicting, and the whole nine yards, it was wonderful. But as soon as Barry Black left, so did the audience. It had nothing to do with ASI or very little in any case. It reminds me of Peter. Now, five minutes and we're done. Peter, we're uh, Matthew chapter 19. Go with me to Matthew chapter 19. The time goes by far too fast. There's a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus. He wants to know what he needs to do to be saved. 
Jesus says, keep the commandments. He says, I've kept all the commandments. What lack I yet? And then Jesus said, if you would be perfect, if you would be 144,000, if you would be part of the remnant, if you would be like me, okay, here's what you do. Go, sell, give, come, follow. Five verbs in one verse. That's verse 21. Go, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, come and follow me, and you will have treasure in heaven. Now, the rich young ruler is like, well... That's a high, high bar. I mean, really, aren't you asking a little bit much? We just met. <laughs> yeah. Now, Peter is standing by. He's looking at this. He's trying to judge the situation the best he can. And he sees a rich young ruler go off, and he is, um, he's offended, and he is sorrowful is what the Bible says. And Peter gets an idea in his head. And I want you to read verse 27. Then answered Peter... And said to him, Behold, we have forsaken all, unlike the rich young ruler. We have followed thee, unlike the rich young ruler. What's in it for us? Isn't that what it says? Then answered Peter and said to him, Behold, we have forsaken all. We have followed you. What's in it for us? What shall we have therefore? What's wrong with that question? Who asks a question like that today? It's when you go to an employee, an employer, and you want to be an employee, and you want to work for the man, and you ask him, what are you going to pay me? That is the question that Peter was asking. Peter was thinking of himself. Peter was thinking of benefits for himself. What are you, what's in it for us? Something's wrong with his thinking, isn't it? Jesus didn't come here for what was in it for him. He came totally self-sacrificially because of what there was in it for the world. Now, if you have a master who shuns wealth, who shuns position, who shuns titles and power and recognition and owning property and all of this stuff, if you have a master for whom the world means nothing and the world despises you because you just won't join into what the world does, what in the world do his followers expect to find from their master. Isn't that the same thing? What do you think? Well, friends, that's the program I believe in at ASI. Now, I don't know if everyone at ASI has bought into it to that degree, but that's what it's meant to be. We're here in this world for a very short time, and let me tell you what, it isn't long. Jesus is coming. We can see the signs. The world is falling apart at the seams. We know, and yet we have not made the 100% dedication, commitment that we need to make. This is what we need to make. And we're here not to be advantaged. We're here to find a venue so that we can spend and be spent. We're here as a means collectively so that we can accomplish more. Scientists understand that. They say the sum of the whole is greater than the sum of all its parts. That, I'll let you think about that, but that's what it means. Together, we can pool our resources. Together, we can build one more, uh, we can build more one-day churches. Together, we can train more New Beginnings evangelists. Together, we can spread more happiness books. Together, we can send more bicycles to co-porters in Africa or in India or wherever it might be. Together, we can touch more people. 
And friends, some people have talents, some people have money, some people have time, some people have youth, some people have strength, some people have education, some people have, have intelligence, and it is God's plan that we should complement each other's talents with the talents we have or supplement somebody else's talents if they don't have the, all the talents that we have. Let's pool it all together and do something. What do you say? It's a means to an end. It's a means whereby business people and professional people with a desire to make a difference in this world can team up with other people, missionaries if you please, and all become missionaries in one way or another. ASI is an opportunity to sacrifice as Jesus sacrificed, to live as he lived, to give as he gave, to be with a team of like-minded people so that we can do more towards the gospel. Don't think of joining ASI for what you can get. We're not going to give you anything. We don't have anything to give except an opportunity to share with us in pushing the gospel forward. That's the challenge that I would like to leave with you this afternoon. Take that challenge, chew on it, and then come and join us. We need your help. God bless you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.